having a beer after a hard day's work once meant putting up with a six o'clock swill. The swill is not only unpleasant, it's also dangerous. Those who like beer, and surprisingly it's still legal to like it. South Australia joins all other states in abandoning the six o'clock swill. Welcome to the Six O'Clock Swill, or Benvenuto al Sorso alla Se, with Tim Blair and Nick Cater in the land of the Southern Cross, and Signorina Carlo de Rosso joining us from Palermo in Sicily for this special Mafiosi edition. How did I do, Caroline, translating the Six O'Clock Swill, by the way? Yeah, not bad. That, the, the practice helped. Practice You've got to be careful, because Google Translate, when I put in the swill, it, it threw up. Gualdrina, I think, is that right? Which means, I think, prostitute. Yeah, it doesn't, one of those things which just doesn't translate seamlessly like many things. And it's hard to explain a concept like a six o'clock swill in a country which has no liquor regulation whatsoever. No, it's a wonderful island. Uh, Sicily, I spent a few days there, Rebecca and I. How are things, Caroline? How's the weather? Is the most important question. It's summer. It's been a lovely change from being in Perth, although we've had thunderstorms, which will explain why my hair is massive and totally uncontrollable, much like the Sicilian people. So I'm crossing to you live from a Pointer Sisters music video, basically. Buddy. That's fantastic. Are you over there on family business, Karen? <laughs> Sorry? Are you over there on family business? <laughs> No, I'm over here on holiday. This is not a tax deduction, illegal law. <laughs> let, let me, let me I'll just play you what I think of when I think of family. This is from the trailer to the Sicilian 1987 movie. The answer to Don Mazzino is no. You have said the word no to Don Mazzino Croce. That means you can no longer live. Let me make one final effort to reason with Giuliano. He's not afraid to die. They love him. All Sicily loves him. Show the Giuliano! Oh, heartwarming. Is it really like that over there? That's what it's like when you try and say no to my mother. <laughs> oh, I listened to that and I was like, oh, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> Nearly lost my life. I briefly held a job as a waiter at a wedding reception centre in Melbourne. And we had an Italian family. And they'd organised for the newly married couple as they entered the reception centre... They played the soundtrack to The Godfather, which I thought was nice. Yeah, very romantic. <laughs> it's a little yeah. bit ominous, really. <laughs> Nothing says happily married quite like organised crime. <laughs> it's a bit of an indication of what you're married into, isn't it? Yeah, it depends. Uh, but there was, there was mm. of course, a famous married wedding scene in The Godfather. Correct. So maybe they, were, they took a different meaning to that scene than an Anglo audience might have taken from it. Yes. While we're on the theme of Oso movies, scripted by Mario Puzzo, we should have a listen to a bit of The Godfather, shouldn't we? Yeah. My father. Men are coming here to kill him. Now you want to get mixed up in the family business? I never wanted this for you. Freedom. You're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Ever. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. 
Isn't that one of the great movie lines of all time? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. (laughs) The version of that that was redone in 4K uh, is magnificent, really worth seeing. But my abiding memory of Sicily was of the missed holiday snap. You know what it's like when you're driving along and you see something and think, I should take a picture of that, but you don't bother because you're just streaming ahead. We came across this sign in the road, one direction pointed to Siaka and the other to Albanese. (laughs) (laughs) And at that time, there were... Two Labour members in the House of Representatives, Con Siaka and Anthony Albanese. Clearly, people took the Albanese direction, but it's funny. I wish I'd taken that sign. Caroline, we feel it's our duty to bring you up to date with the breaking news here in Australia. And Aboriginal Senator Jacinta Price has accused newspaper columnist Peter Fitzsimon of accusing her of giving a racist's voice during an interview last week. Senator Price was interviewed by Fitzsimons, which I thought was her first mistake, and he proceeded to basically do a job on her, I think is the technical expression for it. That's as she that's it, that's as alleged. She said, I'm not a wilting violet, but he's a very aggressive bloke. His interview style is bloody aggressive and he doesn't need to launch in. I said to him, get down from the bloody ivory tower and come out to one of my communities. Senator Price also compared the interview to having a conversation with a brick wall. Is that in character, Tim? A brick wall might have a bigger vocabulary or a larger range of cultural references. He's a... <laughs> you'd rather interview. A brick wall also has a purpose, so there's that. One of the allegations is that there was shouting during the interview, that it became very aggressive and to the point of bullying. And this was followed up by Fitzsimon sending many threatening texts to Jacinta Price. And these texts repeatedly warned Price that he had, with her permission, recorded the entire interview. Jacinta Price, by the way, is very happy. She's told various newspapers, she's very happy for that recording to be made public, which would seem a good idea. Instead of arguing about what's the content and tone of this interview, let's all hear it. Fitzsimons has not released it, however, but he did allow his editor at the Sydney Morning Herald, Bevan Shield, to listen to it, and he delivered a verdict that was a little bit evasive. He said it was an interesting interview. He didn't address directly some of Jacinta Price's more pointed claims. And then he asked, and this is, I think, very telling, he asked that everyone just move on from the issue, which is something you never say when you know you're right. You don't say, go away from this because, hey, I'm correct, let's move on. You never want to move on from being the person who won. The whole thing reached a moment of high comedy for me when shoe-leather leftist Paul Barry, the Media Watch host, volunteered to listen to the recording and be a neutral umpire. (laughs) Oh, no. Release the recording. Why not? Let everyone umpire for themselves. Remember back in the bad old days when we were allowed to think for ourselves? Didn't need to go through a filter of people who knew better? Yeah, exactly. I'd prefer to listen to it rather than have Paul Barry tell me what I can't hear. I have functioning ears. I can work it out. Richard Nixon didn't make that call, did he? Let's not release the Watergate tapes. Let's give them to Paul Barry to check them out as a neutral umpire. Yeah. Just put them out there. We'll just put, I don't think he had much say in yeah, it. Don't think so. They were just put out. I think Paul the highlight Barry. for me, though, was Johannes Leake's cartoon. Brilliant. It was just eviscerating. Just to explain the cartoon, it was a uh, mansplained. The first panel was depicted Jacinta in, in the outback and saying that she spent a great deal of her life living in isolated communities. She's chatting to Peter. And he's talking to her from Sydney Harbour. <laughs> he's got oysters and 
champagne and everything's beautiful. And he says, that's why you're so out of touch. And now Fitzsimons fellow North Shore rich boy posh school friend Mike Carlton has joined him in condemning absolutely this Aboriginal woman from one of the, a remote Aboriginal community that has some of the worst welfare conditions in Australia. She's right. They're in an ivory tower. I've been to Yundamu, which is where Jacinda Price comes from, and it, it, it is shocking in the extreme to see a town of 2,000 people living in terrible conditions, kids not going to school, dogs roaming all over the place, nobody's up before 10. It's just horrible. It sounds like you're talking about my joint. It's not quite as bad as mm. your joint, mate. But it's heading in that direction, I'm telling you. It's got to be fixed. But in the broader issue with Peter Fitzsimons and race, he gets in an unusual amount of conflict with black people. Just in recent years, he called a black security guard a gorilla. He white-splained racism to Tongan-descended Israel Folau. Like He told him what racism is. He's telling a black guy. He stopped inviting Stan Grant to parties because Stan made some jokes about him. Peter won't tolerate that from anyone. And he called for black NRL players to be sacked for refusing to obey white elitist commands. Should this guy have a bit of a look at himself, Caroline? That's quite the list. Yeah, self-reflection is not really something that gets a Guernsey here. And it's totally unsurprising. Hmm. But I guess to, to remain so fixed... In, in such narrow views of the world, you could never ask yourself the question about whether it's right. Yeah. I think they know deep down that, that their view is at the very least not fair, let alone a bit racist and a bit selfish and a bit, all the, bit elitist and all these other things. If you don't ask yourself the question, then you never have to refine your own Opinion, And this is what, in my view, this is a bit of a broader issue where people stop being friends with people who they dis might disagree with on things. Yep. Because if you never challenge your own ideas, then you can never be wrong. And this, I don't have, I don't have any issues. I've got plenty of friends who have different politics to me. That's fine. Yep. We talk about politics. That's fine. We don't agree on things. That's fine. Um, but all of our views should always be subject to being refined because you never know when you're going to receive a better piece of information or something's going to change or whatever which updates your own view or changes your own view it's okay for your own views to change over time yes but we've become very siloed in our opinions because if we change our opinion then we are not as good and righteous a person as we were before and I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. It's not so much that the opinion is robust in itself, but it's whether you as the holder of the opinion are in, in your social circle or by whatever means you measure it, yeah. virtuous. And that's where you end up with the big issue. It's a, it's a much broader issue, but I think that's it. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think the strange thing about this voice thing is a lot of people on the left largely, who are fixated with this idea that a voice to Parliament, as opposed to the 11 Indigenous voices in Parliament, is actually going to fix everything. They've got this idea fixed in their minds, whereas I think people like me and I suspect you two, Tim and Caroline too, you've followed this debate but not very closely, so you haven't really got in read into it. And it's now we're, now we're getting a chance to look at it on its merits, and I've got an open mind, but we've got questions, and they really 
don't like that. They think it's racist or unusual mm. to be yeah. even asking questions about this thing, Correct. let alone opposing it. I've written a piece on this precise point, and it hasn't been published yet, but it's it's the whole idea that whenever we go and do something big, and particularly something like changing the constitution, which once you change the constitution, that's very significant, that you should really analyse all the issues, discuss the pros and cons, have enough detail so that you can make an informed decision. And at the moment, I don't feel like there has been enough of conversation about how the voice is going to work. I'm not, for example, necessarily an outright no. I sit in the I'm unconvinced. But if you can give me a really good set of reasons why I'm happy to be convinced. But at the moment, I'm unconvinced because no one's no one wants to tell us what's going on. And it's this whole argument, the argument from the yes vote or the yes camp is, we want this thing which we're not going to tell you about, but if you don't vote for it, you'll be on the wrong side of history. How often have they said that? As if they know what the course of history is going to be, but of course that's the great thing about Socialists, they always know what the course of history is going to be. The, the, the whole conversation thus far is an intellectual wasteland. I'd be a definite yes if not only did we have no Aboriginal representation in Parliament, but also if there was actual barriers to Aboriginal participation in Parliament. If there was some sort of structural means of keeping the Indigenous community from even electing representatives or being elected. But as it stands, we not only have 11 people who identify as Aboriginal in Parliament. But the doors are open everywhere. Go for it. Run. Right now, the big barrier for me is I don't have Fitzsimons nerve. I find it hard to stand up and say, speaking as an ageing white male from Sydney's leafy North Shore, I thoroughly disagree with the senator who's lived all her life in these conditions and actually knows what Aboriginal people might actually be thinking. Yeah, it's a big jump, isn't it? He's really dived in on that. New Zealand. Uh, Jacinta Ardern, I think we should update ourselves on her commitment to rid the country of childhood poverty. This was Jacinta Ardern in 2017 at the election. I want to build a country where every child grows up free from poverty and is filled with hope and filled with opportunity. But the gap between rich and poor is just getting more and more entrenched. We refuse to accept the status quo, the idea that things can't be improved and that we have no choice. We have a choice and we can choose better. I say we choose better. Victoria better is always a good choice. It's too bad we can't increase the gap between New Zealand and Australia. Or a Campari on ice before dinner. (laughs) So anyway, Childhood Poverty, how's it going? Report this week says UNICEF, this is UNICEF, UNICEF says New Zealand is failing children after a report revealed the country's poor childhood obesity and suicide statistics have pushed it near the very bottom of childhood well-being. It shows that out of 41 developed countries, apparently they're counting New Zealand as a developed country, uh, New Zealand came 35th. The country's youth suicide rates, and this is pretty tragic, uh, the second highest in the developed world, 14.9 deaths per 100,000. And wait for it. New Zealand also has the second highest obesity rate in the OECD, with more than one in three children being obese or overweight. There we go. That's the record. And what did Jacinta Ardern say? Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern said the report was more reflective of the previous government's (laughs) underinvestment in families. She's in her second term. 
She's deep into her second term. Five years. That is straight out of the Daniel Andrews book of local governance. A couple of things there. Evidently, the bringing children out of poverty thing is going as well as the let's build a whole heap of social housing thing. Oh, yeah. Which also landed flat on its backside. <laughs> and we know after our own experiment of that in Australia, with Bob Hawke making that promise, that you can't just bring people out of poverty. You can't pay people to be out of poverty. Poverty is more than just money in your bank account. Money in your bank account is a huge part of being poor, don't get me wrong, but it's a little more involved than that. What you do with that money, how quickly you waste it, whether you've got a source beyond that (laughs) pile of money that's going to sustain you in whatever conditions you want to live. There are many things, but I'm looking forward, if she's going to be this bold about it, and blaming a previous government is a pretty bold move, why doesn't she announce that she's successfully dealt with child poverty by just allowing people to get older? Converting it to, convert it to adult poverty <laughs> and the child poverty, she just goes away. Congratulations, Jacinda. Ban people from having children, yes. then... Hang on a second, that's a great idea, Tim. If you ban people from having children, then you totally alleviate childhood poverty after 18 years. Yes, and you get rid of your country in about the same period of time. So win-win for New Zealand anyway. You might recall during COVID for a period, there was actually a ban on non-cohabiting couples from getting together, which at the time we thought was to stop COVID, but perhaps that was to stop reduced pregnancies. I don't know, maybe that was the aim. I had a chat, this is an interesting tale, I had a chat to our good friend Oliver Hartwich, who Mm. runs the New Zealand Initiative over there. He's uh, German, as his name would expect, but he's been there for 10 years. And he wrote a piece in The Australian yesterday saying New Zealand, wrote a piece in The Australian recently saying that New Zealand was in danger of becoming a failed state. So uh, he was over in Sydney, so we recorded a a chat Mm -hmm. with him in front of an audience for about 60, 70 people. Good chat. And Mm. I thought, well, as we usually do, I'll stick that up on YouTube. So we stuck it up on YouTube. As of this week, that has had 25,000 views. And that, that is, honestly, that is going viral for the Mentis Research Centre. But 90% of those views are in New yeah. Zealand. They are so hungry for, for news that which they don't get in their team. And Oh, God, New Zealand media is the worst. Man, those... Was it Jacinta Ardern only said a couple of weeks ago that unless you get your truth from the government... That's right, yeah. ...don't be looking elsewhere. Interestingly, the week before I came to Italy, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who lives in New Zealand and he's previously worked in Australia. And he said to me, he called me, just asked me how things were going. He's in construction. And he's planning to move the whole family to Australia um, because he said, he goes, look... He goes, I'm at prime working age and I can barely make ends meet here. The economy is just in such yeah. a state. And he said, I just don't see a future. Interestingly, that and maybe as a broader ancillary point to that, we started to see New Zealand house prices coming back down. And I can't remember who did the survey, but there was a survey in New Zealand done about three months ago that four in 10 people who were planning to sell their house in New Zealand were selling their house so they could move to Australia. If he's in, if he's a trade or he's in that field, he's going to find more work that he can complete in Australia at present. That's what I said to him. 
I said, childcare is a bit difficult, rent is a little bit difficult, you will have no difficulty. He's a ticketed builder. But if he wants to go inland to some of the bigger inland sort of locations, again, that, that kills your rental problem in a lot of these places anyway. And the opportunities for trade are just as abundant. I think he's making a great move. If he's got a young family, all the better. With Oliver Hardwich having discovered that he was clickbait, I invited him back. I interviewed him on my brand new television show on this week, Battleground. And I said to him, how does it feel to be a star in your own country? Why are they all watching you on on interviews? Apparently he did an interview with Bolt, which just went off crazy. He's the crowded house of pundits. (laughs) He said, in his very dry German manner, it reminded him of his childhood in Germany when, uh, you know, the East Germans would twist their TV aerials to tune them in and try and get West German TV. So I guess that's what they're doing in New Zealand right now. They've got their aerials fixed, trying to pick up the six o'clock swill <laughs> to listen to a little bit of firm news. <laughs> just talking about antennas, just a brief digression. My friend, Angry Anderson, for a long time had a member of his band or road crew who claimed to be part Aboriginal and to have magical weather reading ability because of his closeness to the country. And if they were playing at a venue outside of Sydney, for example, and they might have a few drinks afterwards, and they'd be like, where's the car parked? We don't know where the car is. Where do we drive now? We're lost. And this guy would go, no, wait. I'm as one with the land. My people commune with the spirits. And he would look to the skies. We head in this direction, angry. And they would go down thinking he was always right. And Angry only found out decades later that this guy wasn't communing with no spirits. He was looking at the television antennas and seeing that they were angled towards the city where all the big (laughs) stations were. They were aimed there, so he was just looking at metal (laughs) and working out from there. It's a great trick. One of the richest men in the country, one of your fellow West Australians, Caroline, began life putting up TV antennas. Do you know who that was? I don't, actually. Was it Alan Bond? Kerry Stokes. Oh, really? So he tells us. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and apart from the toppling of a Italian government by the arrival of yes. Caroline de Russo, the other big foreign news of the week is, of course, China and its absolutely appalling behaviour around Taiwan. Nancy Pelosi was the cause of it all. China was pretty upset about her going, I don't know why you found this piece of an interview, Tim, which suggests she's rather fonder of China than you imagined. Okay. She's all yay for China then, saying that China's a strong democracy. One of the freest countries in the world. Where does that come from? Unless she was thinking of the Republic of China, not i.e. Taiwan and not the People's Republic of China. No, it turns out if you go to her website, the Speaker of the House website, it has a, uh, they have transcripts of all of her media engagements. That was from a television interview, morning TV interview. And there's a little explanation that this, uh, this has been revised because Nancy Pelosi, whose job is the speaker, misspoke. She meant to say Taiwan. So if you go to the official transcript, it now says, in brackets, Taiwan is one of the freest societies in the world. So, so she's made an incredible Caroline, error, but uh, that's pretty standard in the Biden White House. Caroline, apologies for mansplaining over the top of you. You go. Oh. <laughs> That's all right. All I was going to say is that in the Chinese Assembly, there is still a greater opposition than in the WA lower house. So technically, China is a greater democracy than Western Australia. 
That's just... a, it's a narrow call. Tim, you call. What comes next? Do we go to Philip Adams? A very old mistake. Oldest error, the oldest surviving error by Philip Adams. There are older errors, but it's the oldest one I could find. This is from 1982, and sort of thing you could probably get away with back in the day when you weren't going to be immediately fact-checked online. But uh, in a 1982 column for the Bulletin, Philip was writing about the Boyd family, Arthur Boyd, his various relatives, all very creative and so on. And Philip wrote, Look at the way the Boyds produced Penley, a painter, Arthur, painter, David, Potter and a painter, Robin, architect, and Bill, cowboy. Okay, what? Okay, let it continue. For some reason, the Boyds don't often talk about Bill, who went to America as far-lapped strapper, wandering off broken-hearted when the Yanks killed the horse. A few weeks later, he found himself in Hollywood, where he gained overnight fame as Hopalong Cassidy. <laughs> okay, the reason the boys didn't often talk. Look, we've all got that one sibling, okay? <laughs> know, right? Let's not pretend like it's just us normal people. Maybe the reason the Boyds didn't often talk about Bill was because he didn't exist. There was an Australian William Boyd who was the father of Arthur and Guy and David and Mary Boyd. But the actor, the Bill Boyd who played Hopalong Casty was born in... Ohio, Queensland, right? Nothing to do with, besides the horse he rode in cowboy movies, nothing to do with racehorses in particular, Farlap specifically. And additionally, he's, I think, it was, what does Adam say? He found fame just weeks later, following the death of Farlap. He became an overnight successor. Farlap died in 1932. The first Hopalong movie came out in 1935. Everything about that, those couple of paragraphs... It's a load of crap. He was honing his skills for three years, Tim. He was practising his trade. What do you expect? And, he, no, and also, he gained overnight fame. He was famous in the silent era. Jesus. I'm getting really worked up here about something 40 years old, but seriously, man. This is ridiculous. Right, was this in the Australian, when his column in the Australian? If so, we should demand a correction. No, this is... The bulletin. Damn, the thing's folded. We can't demand a correction. But do you realise someone would have read that yeah. and for 40 years they've got this great piece of trivia yeah. oh, that they've yeah, been totally. telling people yeah. about how Arthur Boyd's brother was a cowboy? <laughs> now, like, back in the day, Arthur Boyd and many of the other boys were alive. I think Arthur Boyd only died relatively recently, maybe 1999 or something like that. Something it wasn't a million years ago. Pick up the phone. Yeah, just ring him and say... And they, he, he might have tried that, and that's where he discovered that they were reluctant to talk about it because they're like, some idiot's on the phone talking about Hopalong Cassidy. I just hung up on him. But, yeah, it's, it's a, it must have been a lovely era to write back then because you could probably get away with a bit more. But you're right. You're absolutely right, Carolyn, that there'd be people in pubs and maybe there's a reproduction of a Boyd work on the wall or something, and they go, oh, is that, oh that's that famous reproduction of that famous uh, Boyd stuff and then buy up a Boyd. And then someone would say, interesting thing about the Boyds. <laughs> One of them was Hopalong Cassidy. And everyone would go, wow, that's fantastic. Well done. Boy. To woke news, Tim, yes. who's been cancelled this week? Surely not the Muppets. Surely well, not. Well, Muppets would be. Do you ever see the Muppet movie, Carol? No. Okay. Do you know what a Muppet is? Yes. Yeah, yeah. You're familiar with the, the art of puppetry. She's from West Australia. She knows what yeah, puppets yeah. are. There's a few of them. There's a few of them who sit in our various parliaments around the country. Well, yes. The Muppet movie was very straight-up family fair. Rated G. It starred all the Muppets 
from the popular television series and a huge array of Hollywood stars. It's a lot of fun to watch because you get to pick who all the stars are. For example, James Coburn, Kelly Savalas, I think, is in it. Various people in various roles. But there's a there's one scene that if even proposed in the book would result in the film's cancellation. Can we just play that little clip, Nick? This, this is where Kermit is walking along a street and he happens upon a restaurant. He's okay. Foreign food. Hmm. Doesn't smell <laughs> promising, but the frog's gotta eat. He's happened upon a Mexican restaurant called El Sleazo, which is probably reason enough to get it cancelled. But I just love that a frog is like he's been culturally offensive to our to the Latinxes. And that would get you in a lot of trouble in twenty twenty, I'll tell you what. And a frog, are we expected to believe he's just referring to a slimy <laughs> reptile? <laughs> or could he be referring to a type of animal that hangs around in ponds? I don't Ooh, know. <laughs> crazy Kermit. What a, he's a bigot and he deserves condemnation. Now, another movie from this probably an earlier era is called The, uh, the Bad News Bears. And it's straight up family fare, more or less. And uh, it tells the story of a young girl who joins the bo- a boy's baseball team. And, and she becomes very good. She's an excellent pitcher. And it's the sort of story of their attempt to become actually competitive in the league, which they do with their help. So you'd think people might be cheering this. It's basically a pre-woke movie, in thematically anyway. Some of the dialogue might be a bit problematic for the public. Yes, we have a listen. Walter Matthau is Morris Buttermaker, a man so desperate to make a buck that he did the unforgivable. He put a girl on the team. Boys, I'd like you to meet your new pitcher. Amanda Wurlitzer. Jews fixed niggers and now a girl? Grab a bat, punk. Tatum O'Neill is Amanda, but Amanda is no ordinary girl. And with her help, the bad news bears went from totally terrible to just plain bad. I think that describes the movie, doesn't it, Jim? More or less. <laughs> oh, no, it's actually, no, it's, it's a good picture. The irony is that the girl got on the team yeah. because she was really good at playing baseball. Yes. Which is actually what would be the most offensive thing because she should have got on, a te- on the team <coughs> because of the quota or because she was a victim mm. or for some other reason. But because she was actually good, good at playing baseball, yeah. this would make heads explode. That is another good point. Those were the days when women could take part in in a men's sporting competition without having to go to all the trouble of transitioning. They were a happy is, era, wasn't it? Is it a grand era? Or probably more likely what would happen today is all the blokes in the team would have to transition in order to match her. Well, speaking of great non-work moments in female sport, we had one last week. It was brilliant. The Australian women's cricket team, in their final, because now women's cricket is now a Commonwealth Games sport, the Australian women's team was playing in the final against India, and on the morning of the final, one of the Australian stars tested positive for COVID. And do you know what happened? She played anyway. And everyone was more or less fine with it. So we've gone from all those woke sports writers crying because a tennis player arrived who hadn't been vaccinated. And that was terrifying <laughs> because apparently he was going to make all of Australia just throw their de-vaccinate yeah. themselves. And now you can be actually diagnosed with it, and everyone's, no, whatevs, 
rock up and play anyway and everyone was pretty cool this here is a really a really a really women thing as well like you get sick and you just get on with it the That's boys a, again a good no point. the boys when they get their man covid they all need three weeks <laughs> off and they need a cuddle and a rub down and whatever else goes on in in male professional sport women's cricket team yep they're like any symptoms not nah, you're fine off your trot yeah exactly or even well you appear to a compound fracture Run it off. <laughs> they still play, but you're very correct. The only difference I would point out is long COVID, which almost entirely infects female journalists. It's enormous. The list goes on and on. Hang on. You're on thin ice here, mate. You're on very thin ice. Look, <laughs> where do you think I live? One of my favourite Sophia stories in Sicily, this, I think it's from the mid-90s. Periodically, Indian authorities have very successful large-scale crackdowns on the mafia. And this was during that period. There'd been a spate of kidnappings, ransom kidnappings. And the victims of these kidnappings were either dead or were too frightened to say much about their captors and give away any details. So that the police organised for someone to be a target and they sewed a listening device into this person's clothes. And uh, the mafia obligingly, this particular gang, obligingly did kidnap him. And because he had the listening device in there, they could not only pick up what the various kidnappers were talking about, they got a Vespa, chopped off its muffler, and just rode around the streets of Palermo until they picked up. They could hear it through the listening device. And then they'd radio the driver, the rider, and he'd cycle back, backwards and forwards, until they zeroed in on the apartment block. They used a Vespa as a mafia tracking device, which is the coolest thing ever. And this is the thing that a lot of people don't understand or necessarily appreciate about the Italians. We cop a lot of flack for a lot of things, but ingenuity is something that we do very well. Oh, absolutely. There's lots of other things we do very well, like tax evasion and those sorts of things. But in general, like there is a problem that needs to be fixed. We will find a very stylish Italian way of... Yes, it'll, it won't just be functional, it'll be beautiful. Correct. We own a coffee maker from the 1950s, and it's a brand called Atomic. And you'd own it just for decoration. It is mm. adorable. But it just happens to be really handy for making coffee. But it... Is it one of those that sits on top of the stove? And I think, no, I think you put more hot water in it or something. Anyway, but yeah, it's a beautiful um, aluminium device and uh, it's adorable. It's a lovely Australian-Italian partnership, isn't it? The coffee machine. So the Italians have come up with the most fantastic barista machines now. Uh, but I think, and I gather from talking to friends in, in New York, Australians have become the most skilled people at the world in using this machine to get the best coffee out of it. And if you go to the U.S., Australian baristas are sought after. You don't hear anybody crying out for Italian baristas. So really? they design the machinery and we make it work. That's right, isn't it? Caroline, is that your experience? Well, we do, And we do have such a significant co- coffee culture in Australia. So that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Like at all, it doesn't surprise me. I don't mind a coffee out of a coffee machine, but I, I do prefer the coffee made on the stove in the little cafetiera than the mock yeah. contraption. And the wonderful thing about these is they come in different sizes. So depending how many of the family are coming over, you bring out the appropriate cafetiera. So I've got them from one cup up to 16 cups, just in case. <laughs> 
It is adorable. Of course, we've got Australia is home to the largest ad for Italian ceramics in the world. This is the Opera House. It's covered in Italian tiles. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's held up pretty yeah. well, isn't it? What year was the Opera House completed? Oh, they're still working on it. I think they finished the interior in about 1971, judging by the looks of that. The interior hasn't. Before they did renovate some of it, the interior was looking a bit... Dated. The tiles of the Opera House have held up much better than the bodywork of an Alfa Romeo from a similar period, I think. <laughs> it's actually really difficult to judge that because there are so few Alfa Romeos left from that period. They were using, I think, really cheap Russian-sourced metal for a time. Alfa Romeo was going through one of its periodic bankrupts or near bankrupt phases. So they were cutting a lot of costs and they weren't rust-proofing them. So yeah, if you can find, for example, an Alpha Sud from the early 80s, I met a beautiful little car in the south of Italy, hence the name. But you could actually hear the rust at night, according to a friend who owned one. They would self-consume. And then that's the example. We were talking before about functional and beautiful. This is the example of non-functional and beautiful. Yeah, but still beautiful. Beauty is the constant, okay? Yes, correct. And we can stress that. there is not up for negotiation. Yes. How useful or otherwise, totally different story. We've all got favourite things about Italy. Mine would be my wife. There are other things, such as there was a brilliant debate, I think, in the 90s again, in Parliament, when they were trying to introduce compulsory motorcycle helmet legislation. And this was angrily opposed by a number of members of Parliament who... who were upset that never again would they see cascading blonde hair from a young woman riding a Vespa around around Rome. And this line of argument was taken very seriously. He makes a good point. Yeah, we haven't considered that. Yeah, I think eventually the helmets were made mandatory. Well, yeah. do, might have to do a study tour to find out. We obviously have the modern Italians, but they have survived millennia of all manner of things going wrong, all manner of occupation, fires of Rome, the whole lot. But the Italians consider politics to be very much a sideshow. The politics is there, it happens, but Italians just get on with their daily lives. Like they don't actually think that politics is there or politicians are there to help. It's not like Australia where we really embrace this nanny state thing where we're like, oh, the government has to fix all my problems. In Italy, the government are their problem. Yeah. They park the government to one side and they don't, they definitely don't engage with the same way that we do in Australia. So incidentally, about three weeks ago, I think it was, the Prime Minister, and so there needs to be new elections and this is not unusual. The average Italian government lasts about 18 months. So this one here with COVID, it's pretty much, it's well and truly run its course. In fact, I was here in 2019 when the last government fell. This mm. has got nothing to do with me. It was just a coincidence. <laughs> That is more than a coincidence. Come on, look. Caroline de Russo goes to the country and the government falls. <laughs> if I was an Italian prime minister, I'd be having border yep. checks to make sure you're not allowed to enter the place. Getting into Italy is the easiest country on the planet to walk into. But they need to have an election, but everyone's all after summer holidays. <laughs> It's August, so everyone's on holiday. Fifteenth, The 15th of August is Ferragosto, which is a big national holiday, national celebration. Nothing is open. Even now, everyone is basically out of most of the cities. Everyone is sunbaking on lilos on the coast. This is brilliant. And politics at an election could not be further from their minds, so it is just going to have to wait till sometime in September. Having you on from Italy gives us a very good excuse to replay one of my favourite interviews. Jeremy Paxman of the BBC 
In his final interview of his career as the chief reporter for Newsnight, interviewing Silvio Berlusconi. Do you have a particular problem with Angela Merkel? Is it true you called her an unfuckable lardass? Non arriverei, io non ho mai. But, all right, in, let's take... Scusi, non ho mai, in 20 anni di politica, insultato nessuno. No, I have never had any problems with Angela Merkel. In 20 years of politics, I have never insulted anyone. And this has been made up by someone who wanted to turn Angela against me. È chiaro quindi che non ero un personaggio comodo. I was not an easy person to deal with. And I was quite tough. I had the courage to oppose some of the proposals made by Merkel and Sarkozy. Proposte che venivano dal duo Merkel-Sarkozy. And the time when you jumped out from behind a monument and went cuckoo to Angela Merkel, that was just a joke, was it? Malay. She enjoyed it. I explained why I did the cuckoo thing. A few days earlier, I had been to St. Petersburg to visit Putin. A San Pietroburgo per incontrare Putin. Putin si nascose dietro un pilastro Io andai verso la porta e lui da dietro mi fece cucù. Putin hit behind the pillar and did cucù to me from behind. Merkel and I were really on good terms, so when she came to Trieste, I thought of what Putin had done and I basically hit behind the monument and did the same thing. Gli spiegai che era stato Vladimir Putin a farlo a me qualche giorno prima. Ma questo per dirle i rapporti di grande... It was funny. I bet it was. I bet it was funny. Can you update us on the 85-year-old Silvio? He surely is mellowing. His philandering days must be over. No, no. Look, Silvio is consistent when it comes to his philandering. Look, he's, he's back and involved in Italian politics and he has recently dispensed with his 35-year-old girlfriend who... My understanding is she was getting a bit old and he has now directed his intentions in the direction of a 32-year-old MP in his own party and he regaled journalists at a recent press conference that she has his initials tattooed on her body but he is not going to tell them where. Of course, the Italian media lapped this up. I tried to think about what would happen if that there was a member of our political class regaling the Canberra Press Gallery with that story. And I imagine there would have been a lot of spontaneous combusting. Look, it's not really something in my view that it should be part of politics, but it is still very much like that in this country. And he just doesn't care. Good for him. Always wore the lovely suits, didn't he, when he was in charge? Yeah, and high heel shoes. Oh, yeah, like, of course. Because yeah. <laughs> he's four foot nothing. Tim, we've got a lot to talk about, but maybe we should take the hint. I can see Carolina's reappeared in a fetching polka dot swimsuit with a towel <laughs> over her shoulder, a pair of sunnies. Ready to dash off to the beach. Sunscreen oil in her hand. She's obviously waiting to get down to the beach. Is that right, Caroline? No, it's still pretty overcast outside, actually. Today, beach from tomorrow. Beach is from tomorrow. That'd be cool. 
And I'm particularly in Palermo, so I tan quite dark. But because I haven't been to the beach yet and everyone else here has been on holidays, they're all looking at me like I'm some kind of mutant because I don't have a tan. Anyway, so it is top of list. What, you don't want to get skin cancer in your old age? What are you doing? (laughs) Here you can lay in the sun all day and not get sunburned. So what I do when I come to Italy is I always choose a podcast that's about half an hour. So I get to the beach in the morning, the leader, I get my lilo and I watch my podcast and at the end of each podcast I roll over onto the other side, listen to another podcast roll back and so then at least by the time I leave I've got a really nice even tent you've got sand in your iPods and that's a very uncomfortable thing that's very in Australia you'd more or less get just hop straight on into an ambulance and go to the yeah, burns unit yeah correct here you go for an aperitivo Caroline we look forward to catching up with you when you return to our shores in what 10 weeks 10 11 weeks wish. end of August I'll be back thanks Tim ciao Bella see you Jim. don't forget you can email me at nick at theswill.com.au don't forget five stars on your podcast providers and tell all your friends every American and LBJ is with Australia all the way Australia is the best place in the world to bring up a family But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. How good is Australia?